that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and which our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. That was 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, Wendy and I are quite late to the Costco party. Um, we bought our first membership, shameful to say, this year. And, uh, and I, I, I'm sure I've mentioned Costco before because it's quite the experience. Uh, it's, if, if you're not used to it, it's a bit of a shock to the system. Um, because you don't realize until you go there how massive the aisles are. And they are actually large enough to drive a forklift down. That's why they're so wide. I even researched this on YouTube. And the quantities in each unit, right? You know, you can't just buy one thing. You've got to buy a mountain of it. So there's huge units. Uh, there's this little food court at the front. You can't use Visa, which is a pain. You, and you have to show your cards to get in, and then you have to show your receipt to get out. So never, ever go in there just to go to the bathroom. Otherwise, you will never be able to leave. So, uh, you, so you have to show your receipt in order to get out. So how I would sum it is to use you know, that old, tired, worn Star Trek phrase. You know, It's shopping, gym, but not as we know it. And if there's anything that I've learned about Costco or Costco-ites, as the people who shop there are known. At least that's what I call them as of preparing this sermon. So it's new, but feel free to use it again. But if there's anything that I've learned about Costco-ites is that they love their samples. You see, what Costco, they had the option of, you know, using big signs, drawing the you know, the custom in to try this particular cheese or that particular you know, cherry or this particular cracker, they could have tried writing about it, saying how juicy, tasty, crunchy it is. They could have put up this massive sign with a massive image of that thing showing just how mouth-watering it is. They could have employed someone to write witty slogans or posted videos of people sharing their stories but instead, they did something very differently. They provide free samples. Now, I've experienced other grocery stores doing this, but at Costco, it's like this whole other level. You can walk around the store and literally eat a whole meal of yummy food from every single food group with one trip there. They are ubiquitous. They're on the end of every other aisle, it seems, and I've also seen that people love it, right? They are, they are literally queuing up with these massive trolleys, these massive shopping carts, and you can't get past because there's a sample ahead. So if you want to turn that corner, you've got to take the next aisle and go all the way around. And 
And then they take one for themselves, and they take one for their kids, and they take one for later. And then people come around for a second time and a third time. You know, Costcoites love their free samples. Now, now, one of the holdups for us getting into Costco was, you know, you have to pay money to get membership. But I'm pretty sure that if you did a cost, uh, you know, like a cost analysis, that you'd probably make back your money purely on the free samples that you eat throughout the year. So the long and the short is that Costco are onto something. So instead of wasting time trying to convince someone to buy something, they offer free samples, little portions of the real deal. Uh, for free with no strings attached. Instead of explaining with words what this thing is like, instead they offer the thing itself, hoping that some people will be convinced enough by what they taste to fork out money on the big portion that they will then bring home and try to figure out how to fit 70 extra granola bars in their pantry that they weren't counting on buying in the first place. We're uh, starting a new series today uh, on the letter known as First John, and, uh, and I'm calling this series Looks Like Love. Um, and it's likely that John was written by John, the disciple who Jesus loved, the author of the Gospel of John, and it was most likely penned sometime between 80 AD and 95, 95 AD. And as we will find out throughout this series, that the reason that John wrote this letter was to show us what love looks like. He wants to show us that love is a person, whose name is Jesus, much more than it is a concept or an ideal. And he wants to show us that Jesus is real and Jesus is true. And so First John is a massive showcase of Jesus and his love. It's like John is putting Jesus in some kind of an, a museum exhibit, and he's showing us around it. But he's not like one of these stuffy museum curator types that we see in the movies that they drone on and on and on. No, John is kind of, John is psyched. He's so excited. He's jumping up and down, and he's saying, let me show you the next thing. Let me show you the next thing. Let me show you the next thing over and over again. And we see this in verse 4, where John writes this. He says, we write this to make our joy complete. His own personal joy, his joy quota, his joy, his joy level is his own motivation to write. And, and so the question is, what is it that John is writing? Well, he's writing a letter, but it's not like usual letters that we would read in the New Testament, because if you notice at First John, uh, verse one, um, there there is no introduction, and if you if you look at the end of First John, it ends really abruptly, like there is no no sign off. He just says, "Keep yourself from idols," and then that's the end of the letter. It's a bit like when someone calls you on the phone and then there's no small talk. They're so excited or so het up about whatever it is that they want to say, that they don't even say hello, they just start talking. And then at the end, they're so on to the next thing that they just hang up and leave. And you're left there hearing the, you know, the tone, wondering what just happened. So First John is a bit of a strange letter, but it is a letter nonetheless. And so um, how do we read 
1 John. How should we read 1 John? Well, I'd like to suggest that we read 1 John as an introduction between two people or two parties. It's like John is a mutual friend introducing two people to each other at the party. He's saying, Jesus, meet so-and-so, so-and-so, meet Jesus. That's kind of what he's doing. But who is John trying to introduce Jesus to? Who is the other person? Who is John writing this letter to? Now, John's second letter is clearly written to the lady chosen by God, that we read that in 2 John 1. And John's third letter is written to his mate Gaius, as we read in 3 in third, third John verse 1. But what about 1 John? Now, we, we don't know because he doesn't say who it's to, but there are clues. Like in chapter 2 verse 12, John talks about addressing children, fathers, and young men. So he's obviously writing to like a community. Um, and then chapter 2 verse 19 references people who've left the fellowship, while verse uh, 26 talks about people trying to lead them astray. So there is a context here, even if we don't know exactly what it is yet. Something's going on here. There's some kind of a church split that has caused John to write this letter. Now, it's not super important that we know exactly what happened uh, here, but, um, but it is important that we know that it's written to a, a church, to a group of people of Jesus lovers who are going through a trial or through a crisis. But what is important, even if we don't know why, it's important for us to know uh, how John responds. You see, while he does look at the issues that he's addressing, John spends far more time on the person of Christ. His purpose, his goal in this letter is to take people's eyes off the stuff going on and to refocus them on his Lord and Savior. In a sense, like I said, he's reintroducing them to Jesus. In the midst of this, of this stuff going on, he's saying, folks, here is Jesus, Jesus, folks. You see, when we, when we deal with conflict, when we deal with church splits, when we deal with people teaching falsehoods, when we deal with people leaving, it's so easy for us to focus on these things. It's easy for us to, to choose a side. It's easy for us to draw conclusions. It's easy to get sidetracked and to lose our focus. But John's advice in these moments when we're most tempted to not focus on Christ and to focus on this stuff now, John's advice you know, is to really double down on focusing on Christ, on to make much of him. And not just by repeating to ourselves doctrinal truths, though that is important. Not only by refreshing our head knowledge, but by remembering our experience of Jesus. Look at John's words in verse 1. He says, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked at, that which our hands have touched, These are full-on sense memories. John spent time with Jesus. He knew him. He heard him. He saw him. He lay on his chest. He touched him. And so whatever the doubts that are coming into your life right now, whatever questions you are dealing with, whatever struggles you are going through, remember that this struggle is not your whole reality. Sometimes we can get so caught up with the trials of now that we forget the Jesus that we love and serve. Jesus can start to feel like a bit of a long and a distant memory. 
we forget our first love. Maybe we, we imagined meeting him at that camp meeting. Maybe we were just caught up in the moment. Maybe that answered prayer was merely a coincidence. Maybe it was just wishful thinking. That's, that's how our minds work. But John says, no, remember what you saw. Remember what you looked at. Remember what you heard. Remember what you touched. When faced with discouragement, call to mind the Jesus that you love. You know, the Jesus as he's revealed in Scripture, but also the Jesus that you've experienced. This Jesus who gave you new life. This Jesus that rescued you from drowning and has blessed your life with life and purpose and meaning. This is the Jesus who was from the beginning, as verse 1 says, this is the one who was there right at the beginning of, of, of whatever. He was, he was pre-Big Bang. Jesus is God. He's the creator God. You know, as we read in these few verses, it says in verse 1 that he's the word of life. And then verse 2 tells us that he is the life. And then verse 2 tells us again that he is the eternal life. He is God who was eternally spirit, who was God in skin, God who could be t- touched and seen and heard. This is known as the miracle of the incarnation, God becoming man. You know, think about it. In, in, in verse 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, this is the eternality of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, as John writes in the Gospel of John. But then in verse 2, John says, the life appeared. So he, he was always there, but then he appeared. He broke onto the scene like a sunrise. He was always there. Jesus is, is forever But now he's here in a new way. Jesus came into time and into the experience of humans like you and I. And John says, this is what we proclaim to you. God, who is eternal, who's large enough to to handle your issues and your problems and whatever's going on in your life. He's that God, but he's also God who's close enough to hug you through your hardest times. He's God with skin on. He's God who is Jesus. You know, let me say one more thing about this phrase eternal life in, in, in verse 2. We often think that, when we use this phrase, uh, we often think that the, the phrase, phrase eternal life means this life extended. You know, this and then more of the same. You know, forever and ever and ever. But that's not how John understands it. One, one, one writer puts it like this. John perceives eternal life as life from another eon or from another sphere. Indeed, it is the life of God himself. It is the life of a different, uh, uh, it's a life of a different quality, not merely the life of this present age continued without end. When we're going through trials or hard times, my first point is we have to remember. 
That's what I've been saying. That is step one we have to remember. We have to do our utmost to remember the Jesus as revealed in the Bible and in our own experience, who he is, what he's like, how do we relate to him, how has he revealed himself to us. We need to remember how, how, the, how the, the, the infinite and the eternal Jesus has broken into our lives, how we've experienced him. We need to remember those moments when we knew that Jesus was real, when we could feel you know, the Holy Spirit moving through our lives, those moments when, when we, we were convicted of sin and when we repented and we felt that burden of our hearts rolled away. We have to remember those moments when Jesus was so close to us that it was as if we could actually hear him or see him or reach out and feel him. In those moments of doubt and trial and discouragement, our first and most important task is to remember this Jesus who was eternal and yet is experienced, who is the King of kings and the one who binds up our wounds, who is the Lord of lords and who is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Our joy in this life hinges on this remembering. If you don't remember, you will be miserable. Our hope, our faith hinges on remembering We need to cast our minds back to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, the Savior on that cursed tree, and he was thinking of you. We need to remember as if our souls hang on that. And then, and then after we've remembered, we have to proclaim. Verse 2 says, The life appeared, we have seen it, and we testify to it. Verse 1 says, that which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we what? Proclaim. And then again in verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. And we say this to ourselves, and we say this to others. We, we, We proclaim to ourselves and to, you know, to, to others. And the reason is, what I think anyway, is that our personal faith becomes real as we proclaim it. There are m- many of us who have small, weak, insipid, frail faiths because we've never proclaimed it. We've never given our faith room to breathe, room to maneuver no chance to grow because we keep it locked locked up inside, tight and safe and secure, just between me and God because we do this, our faith never grows. It's like feet that never grow because because they are bound up tight because the shoes are too small. Those feet will never grow. And so we need to let our faith off the leash. We need to unleash our faith. We need to give it its head we need to let it go free range. Now, we have a dog, and he enjoys being at home, hanging out with us as a family. You know, he kind of noses up to you, and he sits at your feet, and, you know, if we're around the table, he's there underneath the table if we're watching TV. He's there at our feet. Sometimes you just want him out of the way. I don't actually kick the dog, though. Not often, anyways. But when the dog comes alive, when he, he comes alive, it's not when he's sat at home with us. When you see him truly living, 
is when he's running as fast as he can after a stick with the wind in his hair and his tongue kind of hanging out behind him like a flag. And at those moments, even though he can't speak, I can almost hear him say, yes, this is awesome. This is living. Running after this stick is everything. This is why I exist. And our faith is the same. We need to let it out every now and again. And how do we do that? We have to proclaim it. Our heart, okay? Our heart is the home of our faith, our mind and our heart. But our mouths are the front door. And we need to let open, we need to open that front door and we need to let it out. Most of us have been grounded at some point in our lives, right? When we're sent up to our room without any supper, uh, we aren't able to leave home our you know, we've lost our privileges. Well, too many of us have grounded our faith. We've restricted it to, to its quarters. We've sent it to its room without any supper. And we've said to our faith, you stay there. That's your place. But John says, that which we've heard, that which we've seen with our eyes, that which we've looked at and which our hands have touched, this we proclaim. Those reasons for our faith need to be spoken out loud And so John is opening his mouth, he's opening the front door of the house of his heart and he's letting this faith out by speaking about it. Charles Spurgeon said this, the word of God can take care of itself and it will do so if we we preach it and if we cease defending it. He says, see you that lion. They have caged him for his preservation. They shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have, have, um, are, are there ready to protect this lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and their spears. These mighty men are intent upon, upon defending a lion. Oh, fools and slow of heart, you just have to open that door. Let the lord of the forest Come forth free. Who dares to encounter him? What will he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. Amen. And so as church folk, we like to talk about sharing our faith. And for many of us, this phrase (laughs) scares the life out of us. Sharing our faith. I mean, what does it even mean to share your faith? Does it mean awkwardly trying to insert Jesus into every conversation that you have? Is that what sharing your faith is? I mean, it's not a bad phrase, but I think it's too vague to be helpful. And when I even read in the Bible, I'm not sure if if that phrase is used. You know, I would have to look at it. But I can't think of any verse that comes straight into my mind that says, you should share your faith. Right? It says lots of other stuff. And John, he doesn't talk about sharing your faith. He says that you should proclaim. You should testify. In verse 2, he says, we, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And so what John's doing here is he's remembering and he is proclaiming. He remembers how he's experienced Jesus until it wells up within him like a volcano, and then then he opens the front door, he opens his mouth, and whatever is naturally working its way inside comes flowing out. And he says in verse 3 that the reason he's sharing this is so that you 
also may have fellowship within it, with us. And then in verse 3, he says that he already has fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I'm telling you this so that you can have fellowship with us, and we already have fellowship with the Father and the Son, right? So that's happening. Because John knows the people that he's writing to. He knows these folks, and he knows Jesus. He's a mutual friend. He knows them both. And what he's doing in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, is he's making the introduction. He's saying, hey, friend, meet Jesus. Hey, Jesus, meet friend. This is what sharing your faith is. It's being a mutual friend. So as a friend of Jesus, your job is not so much to share your faith as it is to make, make the introduction between your friends and Jesus. As you fondly recount your memories of Jesus to your friend. And when you do this, you, you know what you were doing? You were giving them a sample of Jesus. Each time you remember and you proclaim, each time you open your mouth and you let your faith out, you are giving them a sample of Jesus that lets them make an informed decision whether they want to become friends with Jesus themselves. You aren't only telling them truths about him. You are giving them a sample. It's like a, it's like a donut, on the one hand, I could explain to you what a donut's like, how sweet it is, how yummy it is, how tasty it is, uh, how warm it is. You know, it's got the little sugar frosting on the top. You know, sometimes it's chocolate, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's got stuff inside it. Sometimes it's got jam inside it. You know, I could do all that. Or the other thing I could do, which is happening right now, is I could hand you a sample. I could hand you one of the Timbits. I could let these do the talking instead of, of me handing out free samples. Now, Nathan and I were talking about sharing our faith uh, here at church on Tuesday during our Tuesday morning meeting. And as, as, as we were talking about what sharing our faith is, Nathan said this, it's inviting people to a party at Jesus' place. Okay, I want you to listen to that. And if you're writing down, I want you to write this down. That sharing your faith is inviting people to a party at Jesus' place. And my heart leapt when I heard that. Because that's really what it is. Sharing your faith is making an introduction between your friends and between Jesus. It's, it's inviting them to a party at Jesus' place. And, and we read that in the Bible. We read that in the prodigal son, in the parable of the lost coin, in the parable of the lost sheep. They all end up with the problem being solved. And then what do they have? They have a party, right? A party at Jesus' place. So what if we were to stop thinking of evangelism as I must share my faith and we started viewing it as inviting our friends to a party at Jesus' place? And they don't have to go downtown for this party because Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' place is right here, 
right? It says in Luke chapter 17 that the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that, that, that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And they don't have to wait until Friday night for this party because Jesus' party is happening right now. You see, what happens is that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we somehow access this new dimension that was there all along, which is laid over this regular life, but one that can be only accessed by, by accepting Jesus' invitation. And so through faith, we see what was always there, but we've never seen before. It's like real life is now unlocked. It's like we've been living life on the ground floor, and, and, and now all of a sudden we see that there's a second story to this life. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus' place. And so we are the mutual friends between Jesus and our unsaved colleagues, our unsaved family and friends. We get to make that wonderful introduction, and we do it simply by remembering the truths of Jesus and how we've experienced him in our lives, and then we proclaim it. And as we do this, in the middle of the hardship of life, like we've been reading in the book of 1 John, in the middle of of the hardship of life, our joy level starts to rise. And it rises, and it rises, and it rises, and we have 5% joy, and then maybe 10% joy. And then our joy level rises up to 15%, up to 20%, you know, up to 30%, 40%, 50% joy. Can you imagine what it would be like if 50% of your life you could say, I'm legitimately joyful? Okay, what would that even look like? But still it rises, 60% joy, 70% joy, 80% joy, 90% joy, 95% joy. What does 95% joy look like? I know it's not me. And so we ask this question, is it, is it really possible? Well, according to 1 John, it is but we're still not finished because then you go up to 96% joy, 97% joy, 98% joy, 99% joy, 100% joy. This is being joyful. This is being full of joy. And that's why John writes in verse 4, we write this to make our joy what? 50% full, 70% full? No, what does he write there? To make our joy complete. Meaning there's no more room for any joy. And he says in the midst of conflict, in the midst of tough times. And how do we access this joy? By remembering and then proclaiming. By ungrounding our private faith and letting it go free. So how joyful are you? Is your joy complete? When is the last time that you invited someone to the party going on at Jesus' house? When is the last time that you gave them a sample of the life that you have in Christ? When is the last time that you remembered and you proclaimed? You know, do you think that maybe there's a connection between your your joy level and that? Maybe there's a link there? John was addressing a problem at church 
This was the thing that was on everyone's mind. This is the thing that they were all texting each other about. This is the thing that they were all talking to each other about on the way home. And we all have our problems. Our friends have problems. And sometimes these problems are so huge that it's their only reality. Nothing else exists except this issue. It's all-encompassing. Now, we know that their greatest problem is, is that they don't know Jesus yet. But they have other problems, financial, relational, health, work-related, uh, massive, massive problems. And so... How do we address these problems in their life in the same way that John addressed this problem in 1 John? By remembering the truth of Jesus in our lives, both experiential and written in the word of God, and then proclaiming it. We talk about him and how he made all of the difference in our lives. We stop looking like we're living Instagram happy lives and we start being real and, but, and then saying, but in the midst of that, this life appeared, and we've seen it, and we testify to it. And so we give them a little sample of the real thing. Maybe they will return for another sample. Maybe they will bring their mum and their dad and their family and their kids, because that seed is, is, is planted. And then we say to them, hey, would you like to meet Jesus? Because there's a party at his place, and you're invited and then they meet Jesus themselves. And then they find out this wonderful truth that this party that's going on at Jesus' place is being given in their, in their honor. That this party that's going on that they've been invited to is actually for them. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and, and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. They are the guests of honor at this party at Jesus' place. And then again, I say to you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And so if evangelism, if sharing, invita if sharing my faith is a party invitation, if this is what sharing my faith means, then I want in. And the reason why I say this to you is quite selfish. I'm saying this to you because I want to make my joy complete.